Some of, some of you will remember a song which came out, I don't know, 35, 40, 45 years ago. I, I think it is even when I was a child. It's been a long time. But it was a story about, I think, a young girl, depending on who sung it, whether it was a girl or a boy, depending on who made the recording at the time. But I remember it as a girl who wondered about her future and her life and what it would be like. So she went to her mother and asked her what the future held for her. Would she be pretty? Would she be rich? And the answer her mother gave her was, Que sera, sera. Loosely translated in, into English, that means, whatever will be, will be. Or, whatever happens, happens. The future's not ours to see, her mother told her. Now, is that valid? Is that a good answer for a mother to give her daughter? Is that satisfactory? Do you know what your future will be? Can we know what the future of the church will be? Can you know? Do you just have to guess? Do you have to just let it happen? Is that the way it's going to be? Should your life from this day forward be happenstance, fate, quesera, sera, or what? What will it be? Do you have any say in that? Do you want any say in that? Of course you do. Wouldn't you like to be able? You know, people go to seances, they go to uh, fortune tellers, because they want to know what's in their future. I can remember when we were children in school, we would examine our palms to determine our lifeline. Because at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age, we wanted to know. And there's always some girl in the class who had the capacity to look at the palm of your hand and say, well, let's see, your life, I don't even know which line it was. I've got so many there now, I can't tell. But was it a short one or a long one? Did it divide? Was there a fork in the road somewhere in there where your life would change? Did it recognize, did it, was that illness? Or because it was truncated early, was it death? We wondered about those things. When we're young, we dream. We fantasize about our future, like that young girl. Would she be pretty? Would she grow up to be a beautiful woman? Would she be rich? Would she be poor? Would she have a good marriage, a good husband? Would she be divorced six times? What would her fate be? And is it up to fate? I'd like you to turn to Proverbs 29, verse 18. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Well, let's start with verse 17, since we had a sermonette about fathers and about how they should treat their children. Because a father and a mother have some say in how a child will turn out. 
Maybe they can't determine everything, but they can determine some of it. It says, correct your son, and he shall give you rest. Wouldn't you like it to be restful and peaceful when you consider your children and how they turn out? Well, that's a nice goal. Yes, he shall give delight to your soul. Wouldn't it be nice to have children that delight your soul instead of affect your very being? Yes, it would. He's telling you right there, you have some hand in that. I was going to bring up children later on, and maybe I will in passing. Don't want to make a major issue of it today. But wouldn't you like some say in how your children turn out? Notice verse 18, which was my goal. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, we've quoted that, haven't we, many times in the past. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Saying that if we don't have a clear picture of the future, we're going to perish. But how do we get a clear picture of the future? How do you know how your life is going to be in various aspects of that life? We'll get more specific as we go on down. We've already mentioned children. There are many, many facets to a human's life, many, many areas where you can do well or do poorly. Do you know which way it will be? Can you today answer the question the little girl asked her mother? What will the future hold for me? Will my dreams and fantasies come true or will my life be a total disappointment to me? And you can examine society today and you can find some in both categories. You will find very few who are truly happy, who are truly full of joy and peace. We find a world today that is mostly in turmoil. We find people who are worried and stressed out and frustrated. We have people in America who are the wealthiest people the world has ever known, quickly being overtaken by the Chinese, But to this point in time today, we have more affluence than any people in history have ever known. And yet, continually, we hear about people who are stressed out, people who do not have enough time, people who deserve a break today because they work so hard to have that affluence, and yet they rue the fact that they don't have time to enjoy what they have. They're behind the eight ball on their payments. They're, you know, on and on and on the story goes. Because they had no vision, perhaps. And they are in a perishing mode. Can you and I do something about that? Do we have any input? Wouldn't it be nice to have input into your future? Physical and spiritual. Now, when we've read this verse, I think most of the time we have considered it by saying, where there is no vision, the people perish. And we've interpreted that, I think, along with Amos 3.7, which says God will do nothing except that he warns or says it through his prophets. So we think in strictly classical prophetic terms when we analyze this scripture for the most part. 
we think we need to know the answers for the future. We need to know what's going to happen in the world. We need to know what's going to happen with the church. We need to understand prophecy so that we have vision of the future and therefore we not perish along with the world. Now my margin here has a different word for perish. It says, where there is no vision, the people is made naked. In other words, if they don't have a vision of where they're going, if they don't have control of it, they will be made naked. I mean, that is the opposite of clothed, covered, or having plenty, isn't it? If you're naked, you're subject to wind and weather, hypothermia. Um, you could die if you don't have protective clothing on, even from the sun, as opposed to just the winter. Isaiah 33, I won't go there, we re went there recently, has a section which describes the church today, saying that the careless women will be stripped naked before God. And they will stay naked until God turns it around and chooses to bless those who are not careless or who repent of being careless. Those he will bless. Now, that very statement in itself there in Isaiah 33 indicates that if you are not careless, but if you are careful, you won't be stripped naked. In other words, you have some say in whether you will be stripped naked as a church or not. Will all these churches that have come off as splinters from worldwide be successful or not? Will this little group of ours be successful or not? Is it just up to God? whether we are a success here or not? Or do we have some say and some input on whether we will be successes or failures? Now, we often overlook and seldom quote the second part of this verse because we take the first part in that classic prophetic sense. Do we understand prophecy? Do we know what's coming down in the world? Do we know how and when it will happen? And so on and so on. But let's notice a connection here because we're only considering half the thought. When you look at the Proverbs, you have to consider the whole thought that is being put forth. Where there is no vision, the people perish or are made naked. But he that keeps the law happy is he. Now what does... The future and having vision for the future have to do with the law. Now, it was said in the church for many years, and I think it was a wrong statement, really, that the Bible is one-third prophecy, one-third Christian living, and one-third history. Okay. I don't think that is a true statement, really. What part of this Bible do you know that is not prophetic? Every last bit of it. History was written for what purpose? Prophecy. 
We read that, I think, just last week there in Romans. That those things which were written before were written for us. So when Moses wrote something, he was projecting it forward as prophecy for today. And I'm here to tell you, based on the second part of verse 18, that Christian living has to do with prophecy. In your life, in my life, and in the church life. Because how we think and how we live will determine our future. And if we keep His law, we will be happy in the future. If we break His laws, we will be unhappy in the future. It's just that simple. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursings. If you live according to all my statutes, judgments, ordinances, and laws, you will be blessed. If you do not follow them, even if you know them, but break them, you will be cursed. He said, therefore, choose life. He said, choose blessing and not cursing. Our lives and our futures are not whatever will be, will be. If you leave it up to chance, if you accept that mother's advice and leave it to be whatever will be, I will guarantee you it will not be good. Human nature is not good. Human nature does not know good. There is none good, no, not one. Not one righteous, no, not one, to quote it more directly. The human heart is deceptive and evil to the very core, Jeremiah 17, 9. If you leave it up to your human nature, and I think the whole world today, in all its cultures and societies, is a, an attestation to this, it will not be good. Most of the people on the earth, the vast majority of them today, barely have enough clothes, barely have enough food if they have enough, and barely have shelter, living in shacks made of whatever they can find, whether it be in Mexico, South America, Indonesia, Africa, anywhere. Most are barely making it, the vast majority. They have all kinds of problems. And I'm not going to spend the next hour describing the problems of this world. I think they're pretty self-evident if you're paying any attention at all. He that keeps the law, happy is he, or what it's, it's, it's moving forward in the statement there, happy will he be. So, if you're going to be happy and have peace and have prosperity, there's something you must do. It isn't just happenstance or happen chance. You have to take hold of your life. It does not make any difference what has happened in the past. It does not make any difference what your great-grandparents, grandparents, parents your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your neighbors, your friends, you 
did in the past. That is done. Does God say to dwell on that? No, he does not. He says, repent and be changed. Convert it. Be different. In other words, if you continue bumbling along as you always have, and as mankind basically has since Adam on down, then nothing will improve in your life. It requires action, not just thought, not just dreams, not just fantasies. I can remember a lot of dreams and fantasies I had as a child laying out on the, home, on the uh, haystack at home, looking at the stars at night, and thinking about my life and where it would lead. Some of those things, I can say, happened to some degree. But on the other hand, I can look at the whole course of my life and say, for the most part, those dreams didn't happen the way I dreamed them. Why? Why? Because of me. It's the only reason. Because of me. Because I did not have vision to know what to do, how to do it, even though I was taught right, there are a lot of times I didn't do right. I didn't bring, do those things which would bring success in any particular area of my life you might talk about. Some areas I did better than others, just like all of us. Some places I did worse than others, just like all of us. And I can look at my life and say the places that I did better... Things were better. The thing, places where I did worse, things were worse. In other words, I had some say and some input, and sometimes it wasn't the right say and the right input because I didn't do the right things, and therefore things didn't turn out right. I think we can all relate to that. Having vision has to do with understanding what creates success and what does not create success. What allows and promotes failure and what promotes happiness and success. The beginning of wisdom is fear of God. Why would you fear God? Well, he holds life and death in his hands. He holds blessing and cursing in his hands. He holds the future in his hands. Now, with that, it says, fear God and keep his commandments, and things will be well with you. Now, we had a lot about commandments in the Old Testament, but when you shift to the New Testament, what did Christ say? If you will enter into life, keep the commandments that you would have life and have it more abundantly if you obey God. I could go to many, many scriptures here. Many, many in Paul's writings and John's writings. In fact, the Apostle John wrote mostly about commandment keeping. The last standing apostle, after all had been said and done, after all had been tried, after all the apostles had written, after all the prophets had written, John alone remained as a writer of the Bible. And if you look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you will see that he equates love to commandment keeping. Protestants don't. 
Protestants say, all we've got to do is just have this feeling and emotion for each other. But if that feeling and emotion is not based on keeping the laws of God, it is a false love. It is not the love of God. And you can say you love God, but if you don't keep his commandments, John says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. In other words, there is something that has to be done that produces God's love as opposed to human feelings for puppies or sisters or brothers. It is based on very pragmatic principles. Practical things, like doing to your neighbor as you would have him do to you. What it's based on. That's what Paul, that's what John says. And then the last book that the last apostle wrote echoes the same thing. He says that those who are drunks and liars and adulterers and idolaters and thieves and so on will not have part in life. So, what is vision then? Vision is understanding what actions will produce success and what actions will produce failure. That's what vision is. If I do this, that will be the result. If I do this, that will be the result. We need to understand vision if we're going to have it. God laid it out there in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. He laid vision before them. He said, and I'm summarizing this greatly and paraphrasing it, but he said, if you'll do this, you will have a glorious future. Your crops will come in on time. The hail, the bugs won't hit them. You'll be healthy. You won't have the diseases of Egypt. Your children will not be stillborn or deformed. If you keep... These precepts, here is the vision, here is the dream, here is the fantasy that you will fulfill and live. If you will follow this course of action, here on the screen is your life to come. Now, if you ignore these things I'm telling you, let's have a different movie. Bring up the other movie. Disobey by laws, your crops will fail, your children will be stillborn, you will have problems in the field, you'll have problems in the city, you'll have all kinds of problems. Here's your life. Now, isn't that prophecy? You bet it is. God gave us prophecy there. It wasn't just Christian living, and living instruction, it was prophecy. You do this, and this will be the result. You do this, that'll be the result. Take your pick. You decide. Did God say, whatever will be, will be. You can't determine your fate or the course of your life. Yes, you can. You can predetermine. You can think about the things that will produce success and happiness and do them. Or you can think about the things that will not produce success and happiness and do them. And I will guarantee you that whichever you do will come to pass. Because God says that. Now, 
Let's consider the church today. Let's put it in these terms. We have a lot of careless women who are not really paying attention to the things God says in this book. We were lackadaisical, Laodicean. I mean, everybody was, but us. We understand. Right? No, that's what nearly every organization will tell you. Everybody was wrong but us. We're the only Philadelphians. Now, are they looking through rose-colored glasses or what? Weren't we all scattered? Over 90%, a small tithe, 9% maybe plus or whatever, will be saved out of it and be blessed. But at least 9 out of 10 members of the church today are in the process of choosing physical death. Now, they wouldn't think so, would they? Let me amend that. We wouldn't think so, would we? Given a choice or an opportunity, if you don't like that word, given an opportunity today, would you accept life or death? Most of us would desire and accept life today. Do we have any vision for the future? If we continue to be lackadaisical, half-hearted, not giving God the utter focus He desires in our lives, we are in the process of preparing ourselves for the tribulation. We are choosing physical death. We don't think it in those terms. When we eat wrong foods, drink wrong things, we are in the process of choosing physical death. We may not think of it. We may think, oh, I need my fix. Sugar fix, caffeine fix, whatever fix you need, you think. It may make you feel better for the moment, but you are choosing death. What have most people in this country for the last two or three generations been choosing? Death. By the way we eat, by the way we drink, we are choosing diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and every other foul thing you can think of that brings death. We are a sick generation. Why? Because we did not read this book. We have read all kinds of experts' opinions about what you should have. Low fat, high carb, low carb, high protein, low protein, uh, rice only, whatever. 
the present or current fad might be, that is what people have selected. They did not read this entire book and see everything in it that God says about health and nutrition, because it is full of it. There's a lot of it there. People eat crabs and lobsters and pigs and snails and snakes and rats and birds' nests and anything you can name. Rotten beaver tails by the Eskimos in Alaska. Leave it in the ground six months. Dig it up. Eat it. And every once in a while in the newspaper they have an article about five or six or eight of them in a tribe or or a clan that die. Because... Six-month-old whale blubber and beaver tails and heads lack something. Not only do they lack it, they have it. And it kills them. Now, see, they lack vision when they put all that stuff that they scraped off the fish in the ground. They don't have a correct understanding of where that can lead. And I guess if somebody dies of it, the gods must have decreed that they die, because a lot of people, and the Catholic religion is one of them, believes that que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You can't change it. You may not be able to choose at this point whether you will have cancer or a heart attack. Your grandparents and parents did not have vision, they did not read in here about proper oil, olive oil, they did not read in here about eating herbs and vegetables, they just ate what they wanted. It was just meat and potatoes, fine. If the meat and potatoes had chemicals and bad fertilizers and junk in them, that's fine too. If they lived in the south, they ate biscuits and gravy and griots and whatever else. And that place is known, the whole southern section is known as the, uh, the gallstone, I forget exactly how they say it, the gallstone belt. Because they did not have vision of proper nutrition. So they have lots of gallstones. But it's in here, what God said to eat and not eat. Daniel was very aware of it. So don't give me those things that kill kings. Give me some things that are good for me. And let's see who's healthy and who's not. He understood the principle. Someone argued with me on that one. Said, well, we're not eating king's dainties. That was just pig. They wouldn't have eaten pig in any case. It was something else the king had that they realized was not good for them. Can't we understand principles? That if people are eating things that cause cancer, diabetes, and heart attacks, ad nauseum, maybe we shouldn't eat that? Don't we have some control over our future? Maybe, just maybe, it isn't too late. Maybe if you would start eating right now, you could stave off those things that would have happened to you. Maybe it's too late. Maybe we are perishing because we didn't have the vision soon enough and live up to it. Herbert Armstrong told us when I was young, just a child, 
eat only those things which will spoil and eat them before they spoil. And we tried to live by that. But then we got away from it. Because it was said, oh, white sugar and white flour won't hurt you. Chemicals won't hurt you, more or less. One of those watered-down GTA things that he promoted. As student body president, we were going to go to the beach. And I said, well, let's have them make whole wheat buns and let's get good food for this beach party. And Ted heard about it. And that was ridiculed in a forum or a sermon, I forget which. We want good old American white bread hot dogs, mostly beef, still lungs and lips and other parts. But that was ridiculed. And the whole church over time went that way. Why? Because A, he preached it. And B, those who were listening in college who ridiculed the idea of eating good, healthful food went out and began to pastor churches and ridicule it as well. Now we, because of lack of vision, are suffering the penalties of doing it wrong. Are we going to dismiss Daniel's principle that he laid out there? Or will we get the principle and apply it to our lives and that which is right and that which is good and that which is bad? Can we live? Is your future health? Que sera, sera. I'll eat what I want. I'll do what I want. I won't exercise. Well, then you're living by happenstance. You're not living by correct vision and you will perish. Let's go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. I do have scriptures I want to get to today. Some still poo-poo, or they're very slow changing some of these things. Go for it. Your future is in your hands. That's where it lies. If we haven't done it to the point that it's too late. We should have had vision a long time ago and we didn't. But then who knows whether or not God might have mercy and heal us if we truly repent. He does say he will someday. So even if we haven't had vision and we are about to perish, God says, if you will obey me and trust me, perhaps I will turn and forgive and heal. Now, there's some hope for you, even if you've fouled it up to this point. But if you keep fouling it up and choosing cursing, can you truly expect God to intervene? That's where we are in the church today. We became so lackadaisical, so uncaring, so lacking in vision that God splintered, shattered, and scattered the church to the winds. And He is now looking for the few, the remnant, who will gain vision. Who will see that our past conduct, our history, has led to a very dire prophecy right in front of us, and that 90% of the church 
is choosing death. They are choosing by half-heartedness, by not living by every word of God, but only choosing those things which they like as opposed to all the words of God, half-hearted and keeping half his words, maybe, or whatever percentage. Choosing which doctrines from the Bible they want to keep and which ones they don't want. In other words, the problem is not so much doctrinal as it is attitudinal. If we have attitudes about certain of God's instructions, then in that area we can predict our future. Now, if we go along with his instruction and keep it carefully, then we also have some say in our future in that particular area. Isaiah 28, Woe to the crown of pride! So many times God puts pride of any kind down and says, Be humble before me. I resist the proud, I give grace to the humble. <coughs> By nature, we're proud. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. It's a reference to the church. We are the church of the firstborn, the churches of God today. And he says that in a spiritual sense, we're reeling about, staggering as drunkards. Most of the church today has no idea where it's going. They think they have a view of where they're headed. But they are ignoring a great deal of Scripture. And if you ignore any part of Scripture, you are changing the dream, the fantasy, the vision of where you want to be. Now, I would say more than 90% of the church and the ministry today feel that they themselves are Philadelphians and have no problem. Well over 90% feel that way. How far do you have to look to find an admitted, practicing Laodicean today? Someone who will stand up and say, I have been and I am Laodicean. How far do you have to travel in the world of the church today to find a substantial number of people who would admit and accept and claim that. I would just bet, if I were a betting man, that somewhere above 95% of the individuals in the church today consider themselves Philadelphians. They may admit that they're not perfect and they do have some work to do, but they will. their self-assessment is that they're Philadelphians. Now then, why does God say that 90% will go into the tribulation and die there? His view is just the opposite of most individuals and ministry and organizations in the church today. Because we all like to think of ourselves as the exception, don't we? That will not be allowed here. I am not an exception, and neither are you. We got scattered. I got scattered because I was not what I should have been. I did not see clearly. Or if I did see, 
I did not act on the things that I knew to be right to make sure that my future would be what I would desire it to be. Healthy, long-lived, wealthy, you know, you name it, the things you wish and dream about. Woe to the crown of pride, those who say, we're the Philadelphians, we're the very elect. Or some even say, we're the very, very elect. Is there any pride in their crown? We will get a crown of life because we're the Philadelphians. You could just, just as well put in there, we will get a crown of life. We're the Pharisees. Fits just as well, doesn't it? How many of them are saying, Woe to me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And mean it. And understand it. And grasp it. And are ready to change it. Do something about it. Now, it's one thing to recognize what is right and what is wrong. Most human beings have a fairly good understanding of right and wrong, don't they? But to do the right and not be a hearer only is very, very difficult. But God says that the doers will be justified. In other words, you can say, I know God is love, and I know God would want me to do this, and I know God would want me to do that, but, man, I'm feeling weak, or I really need this, or whatever. And therefore, somehow we justify or dismiss or ignore for a while God's instructions. Don't we all have favorite scriptures? Don't we all have instructions we're fond of in here? And don't we all have some things we just as soon not read too often? Because we don't want to do it. Woe to the drunkards of Ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. The church is fading out, isn't it? Which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Wine symbolizing here spiritual drunkenness. Now, you can be physically drunk too, but I think the overall meaning here is staggering about spiritually not really knowing where they're going. And what do you do when you don't have vision? You know, a drunk's vision is clouded. His depth perception goes away. He stumbles, he staggers, he falls because he's not in a real world anymore. His mind has changed because of the alcohol. Can't drive. He thinks he's a great driver when he's drunk. I can drive this thing faster. I can drive it better. I can get through the red lights quicker. The perception of a drunk that he is the world's greatest. Well, depending on the drunk. Some drunks think they're the world's worst at everything. Just depends, you know. Alcohol can make you very depressed, or it can make you so giddy with how wonderful you are that you can do no wrong. It can go either way. Better not to be drunk. And it's certainly better not to be spiritually drunk. 
You need to know where you're going. You need to have goals lined out. And you need to know what it will take to achieve those goals. The church today, obviously, over 90% are going into the tribulation, either do not know the correct goals or are not following through and doing what they know they ought to be doing in order to achieve happiness and peace and protection from God. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, which is a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. The spiritually drunk will fall on the ground and be walked over. The glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looked upon it sees while it is yet in his hands, he eats it up. You can have your dream of a nice piece of fruit, but it'll shrivel and go away before you if you have the wrong goals and go about life wrong. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people. Some are going to predetermine their lives. They will follow an ordered set of instructions, this book, and do their utmost not to let one crumb of it fall to the ground and keep every word of God. They are the ones with vision. They are the ones that will not perish. They will have a crown of life. They will be the residue, the remnant of faithful who are blessed of God. He'll be a diadem of beauty to the residue of his people and for a spirit of judgment to, them, to him that sits in judgment. Better be careful about judging and condemning others because he will come and judge you the same way. Christ said it again in the Sermon on the Mount. And for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. They've wandered off the path, spiritually drunk. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way. Isn't this a way of life? Isn't it a path of righteousness? If you follow the path, you will obtain righteousness. If you stagger off the path, some other direction, you will not find righteousness. Because there is a simple formula. Do these words, all of them, not just the ones you like the best, all of them, and you will be a resounding success. Blessed of God. They've, they're out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, like a bunch of physical drunks. <coughs> so if there is no place clean. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and pulled away from the breasts. Those who are willing to read the heavy parts, the meat parts of this word, and digest it, live it, who have vision to see that all that is written here is palatable, that it is digestible, that it is usable not disregard the sections that we don't like best because of whatever attitude we might have. Isaiah 29, verse 11. And the vision of all is become to you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray you. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. 
the church looks at the major sections of the Bible today as if it has nothing to do with them. All the prophecies, basically, are just about physical Israel. They have nothing to do with the church. What a gross error in understanding and judgment. And that will seal the future of many people in the church today who are choosing death instead of life. Physical death, and ultimately perhaps spiritual death, unless they repent at some point. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah 14, I'm going to cover some scriptures real quickly here. Verse 13, Zechariah, or Jeremiah 14, 13. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Don't you hear that in nearly all the splinter groups of the church of God today? You will find peace in this place. <laughs> all you have to do is pray and pay, follow me, and you will have success in a crown of life. Isn't that the overall message you hear in nearly all the churches? Yes, it is. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. Most people who have set themselves up as teachers today, God has not sent. They are self-styled teachers. They are biblical illiterates in many cases, or novices, who do not understand the whole flow of the Bible and don't even know the Bible very well, but they want to be teachers because of vanity, ego, and pride. They prophesy untruths in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them. Neither spoke to them. How many have been spoken to? How many have been commanded to be teachers? And by comparison, how many have decided to become teachers? How many have decided, I think I want twice as critical and harsh a judgment as I would otherwise receive? How many children, as was said in the sermonette, say, Daddy, not only give me a spanking, Give me a double one. I really need a whaling. Lay it on me. Give me double what you normally would for this infraction. When you decide to be a teacher, God has already said in His Word what your future holds. You will receive twice the scrutiny. Twice the criticism, twice the judgment of whoever is beside you who did not choose to be a teacher. You have some say in how severe your judgment will be. If you decide to be a teacher, you have decided ahead of time that you can stand double the judgment. That's vision. That's seeing into the future because that's what God says. So then you have to make a decision as to whether you want to teach others and influence others or not. Be it formally or indirectly or personally or however you choose to do your teachership. 
I didn't command them or speak to them. They prophesy to you a false vision. They tell you everything is going to be all right. Just stay, pray, and pay. And I'll do the work, or we'll do the work. You support us, and your crown is assured. That is what they preach today. And it is a false vision. It's a false divination. And a thing of nothing. And the deceit of their heart. You, not I, determine your judgment. You have to consider all these words and not let any of them fall to the ground. And your success or failure will be based on that, not whether you pray, pay, and stay. And whether the preacher tells you you're a Philadelphian, don't worry, or not. Because the truth is, over 90% of the church considers them Philadelphians, then why is 90% of the church going into the tribulation? That is a false vision. It is a false judgment. It is a lie. And if you buy into it, you are going into the tribulation. Because God says, to this man will I look. One who trembles at my word... Not just one who is inspired by the only living apostle of the Philadelphians, or whatever he may call himself. I don't think a day goes by, certainly not very often, that I don't pray to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I do recognize that there is a vast difference between Daryl and this word. Vast difference. This word describes the way God thinks, acts, and lives. And I don't resemble it a whole lot, a lot of the time. I still sin. And I am, when I do, I am playing with my future. Because I don't have the vision, maybe at the moment. You know, sometimes you can think, oh, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't think that, and you'll stop it. And there are other times when you think, oh, I shouldn't think this, but, and you can put it out of your mind and think it or do it anyway. So easy to do that. I shouldn't gossip. Boy, this is good. <laughs> How many times do people say, well, I know I shouldn't say this, but... And that big but excuses what they're about to say. Have you ever considered... I wonder if these people have ever thought about... And you go ahead and say, with that preface, what you want to say whether you should or not. Let's go to Jeremiah 23. Keep track of the time here. Jeremiah 23, down about verse 16. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Hearken not to the words of the prophets that prophesy to you. They make you vain. They make you full of pride. They make you full of ego. Isn't that what Revelation 3 says don't do? 
Don't say, I am rich and increased with spiritual goods, I have need of nothing. I'm a Philadelphian, I have need of nothing. We have everything we need. We have everything from Herbert Armstrong that we require. We're, we're the only remaining Philadelphians. And by those very words, you prove your Laodicean. <coughs> they make you vain. They give you spiritual pride and ego. They speak a vision of their own heart, the way they wish things would be. You know, as a child, you can dream and fantasize about the way you hope and wish things will be. But they don't just happen, do they? They're dreamers, and there are those who make dreams come true. Dreaming alone accomplishes nothing. Now, it fixes a vision of where you want to be. But if that vision does not include what it will take to get there, you're just a dreamer with no basis for hope. They say, still unto them that despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. There are a lot of people in the church who despise God. How do I know they despise God? Because they don't follow through and do the things God says. So that is their attitude. Whether they know it or not. They wouldn't say that. Oh, I love God. But he says, if you despise his word and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. You're covering the truth up. To dream what you want to dream with no hope of fulfilling that dream because you're not willing to do the things it takes to get there. That's just the way that it is. You should have a say in your future. The church should have a say in its future. But it's doing the things that will ensure cursing instead of blessing. Spiritual pride, ego, and vanity is a major part of that today. All right, let's go on to Lamentations 2. Lamentations 2. This whole book is written about the church. Here I want verse 9. Well, let's read verse 8. For the context, the Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion, knocked down the walls, made big breaches in the church. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. He can't tell spiritual Jews from spiritual Gentiles when you look at the church today. The law is no more. And that's at the basis of it. They're denying the words of God. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The church is going to continue to come apart and fail because it has no true comprehension of its own state and what it would take to change it. Therefore, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. Some are still proclaiming themselves to be the apostle or the whatever. But the time is coming when total famine of Amos 8 will occur 
And they'll sit on the ground and say, I don't know. I don't know a thing. Because their churches are going to continue to split and fall apart. Will this one? Will it? It is in our hands. We do not have to say, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It'll either do good or it won't. No, just like in individual life, we have to make it succeed. How can we do that? Through vision. Through understanding that if we keep the laws, ordinances, statutes, the wishes of God, we will be blessed. And if we ignore any parts of this work, we will be cursed. In the areas that we obey, we will be blessed in. In the areas that we disobey, we will be cursed in. That's the way it works. Let's notice a couple in Ezekiel. That'll get all the major prophets here. Ezekiel 7. I, I could go to hundreds of passages. These are just a few I picked out. Ezekiel 7. And here I want down around verse 26. Uh, verse 25. Destruction comes, and they shall seek peace, and there shall be none. I dreamed of peace. I dreamed of protection. I dreamed of going to a place of safety. I dreamed of the kingdom of God. I fantasized living forever. But, destruction comes. Mischief shall come upon mischief. Trouble upon trouble. Rumor shall be upon rumor. You hear all kinds of rumors in the church. Then shall they seek a vision of the prophet. But the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancients. See, vision and the words, the law, the commandments, the statutes of God are connected again here just like they were in Proverbs 29, 18. They go hand in hand. If we have a vision of the future, it had better include all the instructions, every word of God, or the future will not be perfect. And it will be imperfect according to the degree that we are willing to overlook and not do the things God sets. Ezekiel 12. Let's start with about verse 22. Well, verse 21, And the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, what is that proverb that you have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged, and every vision fails? Didn't we have a vision in worldwide of the way things were going to be? Didn't we have this picture that we had dreamed that as long as we stayed and prayed and paid and Herbert Armstrong would do the work, that we would go to a place of safety, we would be protected from the tribulation and all the terrible things that are about to happen on this world, and that we would have our crown secured in the kingdom of God because we were the followers of Sardis. We were the Philadelphians. That is the vision, that is the picture, that is the movie we had in our minds. What happened to that vision? Where is it today? 
gone. Except that a few, well, most, still cling to it, saying that they are the only righteous branch and that they will be the ones. Instead of everybody, it's just going to be us. Pull your head out from under your arm. Because you're living in the pits. And it's not good. Tell them, therefore, verse 23, Thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, The days are at hand, and the effect of every vision, for there shall be no more any vain vision nor flattering divination within the house of Israel. God's going to solve this, but He's only going to solve it with the remnant and the residue who understand vision and therefore aren't going to perish. For I am the Lord. I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged. For in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word and will perform it, says the Lord God. He is going to turn it around, but he is only going to turn it around for that faithful remnant who do what he says in this word. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days to come. Long way off. No, we're reading this now, and it isn't very far off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, There shall none of my words be prolonged any more. The time of action will come. Like it says, Rise up and do your work there in Zechariah 2. Which I have spoken shall be done, says the Eternal. And you can go on into the next chapter. I, don't, I won't take the time, but it, it's good there too. Oh. Uh, all right, let's draw this down more personally then. We've been talking mostly about the church. But let's see this principle applied. I talked some about children. Take, and we mentioned health and talked about that. People are most concerned about health and wealth. So let's take wealth for an example. Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Will I be affluent? Will I have wealth? Or will I remain poor? What will I be? Whatever will be, will be. I'll either be poor or I'll win the lottery. It's all a matter of chance. I'll be poor or my aunt will die and give me six billion. It's all a matter of chance. Is it? Let's notice some things, first of all, in Proverbs. I'll go through some of these very quickly. The, the Proverbs are full of them here. Again, I just picked out a very few. Proverbs 10, verse 4. He becomes poor that deals with a slack hand. Lazy man is going to be poor. But the hand of the diligent makes wealthy. He that gathers in summer is a wise son, but he that sleeps in harvest is a son that causes shame. See? Already, your financial future has been laid out in a principle. If you're diligent, you work hard, you will do well. If you're lazy and lay on your butt, you'll be poor. First principle. See how easy that is? If you don't have vision of what can be done and have the practical steps to do it, then nothing will happen. 
Let's see, where do I want? 1227. The slothful man roasts not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. I have seen a lot of people who spent their hunting days in the bar or in the camp drinking beer or whatever, and if they wanted to bring any meat home, they went and bought it or bought it from a hunter who was diligent. Well, you can't buy and sell wild game. They do it anyhow. But for the most part, the successful hunters I've seen were the ones who were willing to get out and climb the hills and climb the mountains and look behind the trees and flow over the rocks who were diligent in it. Same principle we already read. Chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desires, dreams, imagines, and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. You want a fat soul? Be diligent. Now, God didn't say fat guts or behinds. He said fat bones. Healthy bones is what it means. Chapter 22, verse 29. See you a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before average people. So, diligence is one of the first keys. Chapter 27, verse 23. I mean, it's all through here. Be you diligent to know the state of your flocks and look well to your herds. Know what's going on if you're a farmer or rancher with your animals. Are they diseased? Are they hurt? Are the coyotes getting them? Are the eagles getting them? What's going on? Know well what's going on. You can't lay in bed or sit on the porch and rock and chew a hayseed and know what's going on with your flocks and herds. Just can't do it. You've got to get in and manage it. Will you be handsome? Will you be rich? Depends on what you do. Proverbs 28, verse 8. He that by usury and unjust gain increases his substance. Yeah, by lying, cheating, stealing, high usury, you might increase your substance, but what happens to it? You might do evil, and gain money. But God tells you what will happen to that money. He shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. You may think you're on top of the world if you're using wrong methods, but God will turn it around and you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. Will happen. Bet on it. Guaranteed. Notice verse 9. He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, shall be abomination. Which parts of God's Word are you willing to deny? Which parts will you have attuned about and not like, even though Scripture says it? We have our favorite doctrines and we have our unfavorite doctrines. We have our favorite sins and then we have those sins that... We don't care about. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And God will work it out eventually where that is the case. We are put here to work. There is a proverb or a saying, it is in the Bible, but a fool and his money is soon parted. 
Now, you can work hard and be diligent. See, there are many different aspects to this. You can work hard and be diligent and earn some money, but if you're a fool in terms of management, then you're soon parted from your money. Some people get paid. They may only get paid enough to last, let's say, the next two weeks or week or month, however often they get paid. They may only get paid to sustain themselves that long. Now, if they properly manage, they should be fine. They might not live high, but they should be fine if they manage properly. But, if as soon as they get paid, they feel flush and say, let's go out to eat tonight. Let's drive to town to eat tonight. Let's spend money on gas and food because I feel flush. I just got paid. It's payday. Let's party. But they're not thinking of next week or the week after because there is no paycheck now for another week or two. So they find ways to blow it because they feel flush right now. Maybe they're asking the wrong questions. Maybe instead of, do you like your steak rare, they should be saying, do you like your steak rarely? Different question, different response. Can you go out and eat steak because you feel flush today if you know there's nothing but bread or water tomorrow? But many people live that way. They do not plan their budget. They do not manage their finances. They just let them happen. You know what? There are pawn stores. There are loan sharks that make billions because people do not manage their money wisely. Because they have to borrow on this week's or next week's check in order to live this week because they already blew last week's. And then they're putting next week in jeopardy because not only are they borrowing on that check so they won't get as big a check, but they're also paying enormous interest on that which they borrowed. So they're losing two ways. They're making next month's check smaller, and at the same time, they're throwing a lot of interest on top of it. There are millions of people in this country who mismanage what they have, and therefore are always behind. They don't just live from paycheck to paycheck. They can't even make it from paycheck to paycheck because they have steak tastes on hamburger budgets or hamburger tastes on salad budgets, whatever the case may be. They are not willing to live within their means and they don't really mean that. Oh, I'm not living high. Well, you're living higher than you have money to pay for. And you're having to go to the loan shark to get enough money to live till your next check comes, diminishing it. And so life is continually stressed out. If you're going to do well financially, you have to learn management. It's that simple. Is that in your hands? Or is that just, you know, whatever will be, will be. I've got money today. Oh, we did that, we did that. Man, man my money's off. Now what am I going to do? Guess I'll go to the loan shark. Go to the boss. Whatever. Fool and his money are soon parted. Because, secondarily, people live by the desire of the moment. Isn't that what the prodigal son did? 
Isn't that what Proverbs 29.3 is about the man who spends his substance on harlots? He dreamed about being wealthy, but he blows it on food and drink and wine, women, and song. What happened to his dream? He didn't have vision. Vision being, again, understanding what will happen if I follow this course of action or what will happen if I follow that course of action and then doing one or the other. If you've got a mixed bag, some success, some failure, then your vision is not being carried through completely. If you have mostly failure, then your vision is clouded. You can't see where you're going and you're drunk spiritually. Doesn't Haggai say that our whole society, our whole culture, and our whole church goes to work to earn wages, but it's like putting it in a hole in a pocket. It just goes away. Doesn't stay. Not managing properly. That's talking about the end-time church there in Haggai. There's another factor we have to consider. Because of lack of vision, let's understand Malachi 3. Talking here in the context of Jesus Christ coming back. Chapter 3, I will send my messenger, he shall prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, and one day he'll forgive the sins of a remnant residue of his church, and he will appear before it in whatever form he chooses in terms of blessings. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. The covenant says that you have to do certain things a certain way, doesn't it? Isn't that what a covenant is? I agree to do this if you will do that. Now, what's, what is the problem with the covenants God has made? It's always people. It was a problem with the old covenant, and it is the same problem with the new covenant church, which denies some of God's word and becomes spiritually proud, vain, arrogant, and full of ego spiritually who try to teach when they ought to be listening. So this is verse 2. Let's get the context here. When is this talking about? Is this talking about Noah's or Abraham's day? No. Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now before he returns to this earth, he's going to make some judgments. And 90% of the church is not going to be considered worthy to escape the things that are coming on this world. That is the judgment he will make. And he will stir and choose those whom he brings together as his faithful remnant. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of... This is a process. It takes time to purify silver and gold. Now, we are the raw material. We're the ore. But he is going to put incredible pressure and heat on the church. Already is, but it's going to get worse before he appears and makes those judgments. Most of the church is saying, que sera, sera. Or if I will follow and do what this preacher says, pray, pay, and stay, I'll be fine. Now, is it wrong to pray? No. Is it wrong to stay? Not usually. Is it wrong to pay? No. Those are all things God says do. But you better be sure you're not leaving the vision out. The vision of what will happen if you do certain things. Let's go on. 
Verse 4, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. He's going to have a very close relationship with a faithful remnant. The rest are going into tribulation and mostly die, if not all. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against whom? Sorcerers, against adulterers, against false swearers, people whose word isn't any good, against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Lord of hosts. So see, you can have vision of God blessing you if you obey, and you can also have a bad dream in your head of what will happen to you if you do these things. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He will show mercy to a certain point, and even those who make it will how scarcely be saved. Because God is God, and He does not recompense evil for evil. Even from the days of your fathers, all the way back in history, through today, and through the time Christ takes a hand, all through history, even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances. Not just His Ten Commandments, but His ordinances. All the things that God wishes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Does that sound like Kesara Sarah? Not at all. It's thought and action that produce good. But you said, Wherein shall we return? We say, What are you talking about? So he uses an example. Doesn't use one of the ones that he used above, he uses a different one. Well, that does too, because it talks about a thief up there. <coughs> Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? That might be an honest question. God says, in tithes and offerings. says that to the very end time church. Now, this didn't used to be much of a problem in the church, because most people tithed and gave offerings. But now, at the very end, we have a lot of people who are departing from that for whatever reason. They didn't like the way the money was spent. Fine, wasn't spent right. They didn't like ministers getting all that money, how much ever it was. They didn't like that. Notwithstanding that Aaron's own family got 1% of the gross national product of Israel, and the rest of the priests got 9% of the gross national product. God said... That is the way it is to be. But a lot of people, for whatever reasons, have an attitude about that today. Can they expect blessing? Let's go on. You've robbed me. You are cursed with a curse. You want to have financial stability? You want to have financial blessing? It says tithe and give offerings, or you'll be cursed. For you've robbed me even this whole nation, this whole people. And he's talking about the people who returns to his church. Bring you. Now, how are you going to argue with this? In time church, those to whom God is, Christ is going to appear at the end as a refiner of silver. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And what is his house? The church. 
our own bodies, but this is speaking of the church. And prove me now herewith, says the Eternal of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Your bag, your, your bag won't have holes anymore. Now he lays it before us here, just like he did in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. See, prove, test me, find out. In this very end time, without vision, the people will perish. But if they do what God says, they will prosper. Just a few principles. There are many, many more in here about finances and wealth. I just picked out a very few. We should be at the end of this. We've already mentioned children. We've been mentioned healthy and sick, things I wanted to get to. Will our community succeed? Let me spend a couple minutes on that. It's up to us. It's entirely up to us whether we succeed right here or not. I said that from the very get-go. If we forget God, we will go down the tubes. If we worship God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul and do the things which He says, this community will succeed and flourish. It's up to us. So far, I'd say we have somewhat of a mixed bag. We've had some who came here with the classic prophetic view. I want to find out what's going to happen in the future. I want to find out what's going to happen to the church. I want to find out when it's going to happen. I want to know what's going to happen in Daniel. I want to know this. I want to know that. So they came here because, perhaps of the Minor Prophets series, grew quite a few, because they wanted to know what those prophecies had to say and what, the, what was going to happen to the church. Well, that's well and good. But at the same time, they did not see not just the classic prophecy, but they didn't understand Proverbs 28:19, which says the people perish or are made naked because they don't keep all the laws and the will and the words of God. So, they come here all excited, and then they find something that they should do, according to Scripture, that they won't do. There are people who have left here Primarily, I think, because they didn't want to change their diet. They didn't have vision of what eating this, this, and this would do to you as opposed to doing the way God said to do it. So they got browned off about that and left. I know one case. They're happy for a while here, but they leave. Why? Mostly because of lack of vision of knowing cause and effect, as Herbert Armstrong put it. They were not prepared to change their lives, to repent and be converted, to do everything the way God says. So, they get upset and leave because of one or two or three things that they disagree with God on. Can't prove that it's wrong. They just don't like it and don't want to do it. They're not willing to live by every word of God and not prepared to change their lives. So, their lives will be whatever they will be. And it will tend toward frustration, it will tend toward failure, and it will tend toward the cursing of God. The Bible is a book of life. If you capture that vision, and you capture 
the way of life that is required for success, you follow through and do it, your life is going to turn out as you wish and as you dream because you don't sit on your bed and dream, but you get up and do something about it. That is the whole message of the Bible. That is what God has been trying to get across to us from Adam and Eve today, uh, until today, but we're very slow. And this book affects every facet of your life. Every part of humanity, every part of our mind, our emotions, and our activities, there is something in this book about it. If you are having trouble in any one section of your life, children, wealth, health, whatever it might be, there are some answers in here. And they're the correct answers that will work if judiciously, carefully applied. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and vision of how to live so that things will turn out the way you always dreamed in your greatest fantasies they could be. We can live eternally. We can always have peace, plenty, prosperity, happiness, and joy forever if we have vision of how to live. But if we start dropping parts of this and are careless with it, we will be stripped naked and eventually we will perish. For lack of vision, the people perish because they do not keep every word of God. I hope we understand Proverbs 28:19 a little better now.